The Bible reading this morning comes from the end of John chapter 7 and into John chapter 8. But as you look at it in your Bibles, you'll probably just look at it. It, it will seem like it's, uh, it's chapter 8 verse 1. But we begin at verse 53 of uh, John chapter 7. It's one of the vagaries of the translation. I'm reading from the NIV. It's a story that I suspect you'll, um, you'll know quite well. Context here is important um, because of this first uh, phrase. Jesus has been speaking at the Feast of Tabernacles and there's a series of interviews um, in John chapter 7 uh, and this is right at the end of that. So, uh, at the end of all of those interviews, they all went home. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, so just outside of Jerusalem. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought, a, uh, brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to move away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. It's an evocative story, an extraordinary story, a story that for me has shifted my understanding of God quite profoundly. In the middle of last century, a psychologist by the name of Abraham Maslow wrote a paper titled A Theory of Human Motivation. Now, I'm not sure that you are into reading psychological uh, technical papers. So you may not have read Maslow's paper, but you've probably heard of what he outlined in that paper and that's called Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. It's become uh, very well known. Now I'm not going to unpack it in detail but several comments are helpful in thinking about this. Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs took root in the West in the months and years after the Second World War. It corresponded with a baby boom, there was unprecedented economic growth, all things seemed possible. Indeed, uh, a couple of decades after Maslow produced his work, Neil Armstrong walked on the surface of the moon. It was a generation uh, and a moment of human self-actualisation. Dreams were attainable. So Maslow's, hi Maslow's hierarchy worked itself into Western consciousness to the point that at the popular level at least, there was no debate. It was ipso facto true. If you're familiar with Maslow's hierarchy, it's often drawn as a pyramid, right? At the, the first three levels are, are base levels around uh, physiological needs and safety, things like food. And then the, the, the next three levels are more around um, 
those more esoteric elements of life, love, relationship and self-actualisation. If you fast forward to today, living in 21st century Australia, emerging as we are out of a COVID lockdown that's changed the way that we see the everyday, well, the rules have changed and the aspiration of self-actualisation seems to many unrealistic. We're more cautious, we're circumspect, perhaps even jaded. Anxiety and depression are hidden pandemics, not garnering at the moment the same attention as COVID, but claiming lives nonetheless. And I'm not comparing the issues here, rather to simply say the peak of Maslow's hierarchy, this idea of self-actualisation, seems a very long, long way away, especially when we have to climb that mountain alone. Which brings us to today's text, this famous story. It's an odd story. There's debate uh, as to whether the story itself is original or a later edition. You might have noticed uh, as you're reading along with your Bible that um, many of the translations say the earliest manuscripts don't have this story here. Uh, In some, it occurs in other parts of John's Gospel, at the end of chapter 21, for example. Uh, In yet other early texts, it appears in Luke's Gospel and some it doesn't appear at all. So it is difficult to work out how this was all kind of cobbled together. Uh, It does seem to me likely to be something of a later edition. Nonetheless, it rings true in the story that it tells us about Jesus. And the reason that I believe it's ended up where it's ended up in John's Gospel is it acts as a pivot point from John chapter 7 into John chapter 8. If you take it out, it actually flows quite well, John chapter 7 into John chapter 8, but the mood darkens as you go into John chapter 8. So it sits between Jesus teaching at the Feast of Tabernacles and being questioned around his identity and his purpose and then chapter 8 Jesus points out the hypocrisy and double standards of the religious leaders who willfully misinterpret his message. So this story stands as a pivot point where Jesus begins to reveal the breadth of God's love and redemption and it's at this point in the gospel of john that the jewish leaders look to actively find opportunity to kill him let's work our way through it we have jesus at the mount of olives and along come a troop of religious leaders they bring with them a woman caught in the very act of adultery. The inference here is that she's a working woman, a prostitute. Uh, She's probably naked and they drag her before Jesus and throw her at his feet. It's a humiliating scene and you can potentially feel it within your own own person as you visualise that image and especially if you're a woman, I suspect you'll feel the deep vulnerability of this situation. So a woman is thrown at the feet of Jesus and she's there for purely political purposes. They don't care about her, they have no desire to see her redeemed, they shame her for an agenda. They throw her before Jesus and think this will get him and they say, listen, the law of Moses says that this woman 
who was found in the very act of adultery should be executed. What are you going to do, Jesus? It's a very tricky question. Of course, we might ask ourselves, you know, the very obvious question, it takes two to tango in these things, where's the man? But that doesn't fit the agenda of what the Pharisees are doing here. They take this woman, they throw her before Jesus and they say to him, the law of Moses says such a woman, woman must be executed, what are you going to do? At that point in, in time, Jesus doesn't really do anything. He bends down and he begins to write or scribble or doodle, we don't know, in the dirt. We can speculate on what he might have been doing there. Was he writing a list of sins, perhaps, that the Pharisees themselves had been guilty of? Was he writing about their hypocrisy? Uh, was he perhaps writing the names of Pharisees that he knew who themselves were adulterers? We don't know. Was he simply doodling? Was he kind of wasting time? We don't know. My sense here is that Jesus is so confronted by this moment and by the, the shameful behaviour of the Pharisees and religious leaders who ought to be looking after the people of Israel, who were the guardians of this great God story and were so abusing the goodness and love of God. I think Jesus is so infuriated by this that he just takes his time and scribbles in the dirt. Perhaps, perhaps, so that he doesn't say something he regrets later. Well, they get agitated. What are you going to do? What are you going to do, Jesus? They think they've got him. The law is very clear, and it is indeed very clear in both Deuteronomy and Leviticus that those caught in the act of adultery are to be executed. Of course, in the law of Moses, it says both. The Pharisees have only brought the woman. Jesus squiggles on the ground. Finally, he stands up. Now, keep in mind here that there's a woman between Jesus and the Pharisees. She's very likely naked. She's totally ashamed, been entirely humiliated. It is a deeply abusive situation. So bear in mind what she must be feeling at this point in time. Jesus stands and looks them in the eye and says, you're right. You're right. Now imagine how this woman feels at this point in time. She sees her impending execution. Jesus says, you're right. That's what the law of Moses says. I agree. I agree. But let's have order as they raise up the rocks they would have brought with them. Let's have order, says Jesus. Let's start with the one who is sinless among you. Let's start with the one who's never done anything wrong among you. Let us take one of you Pharisees who's never failed the law in any way and you throw the first stone. And then we'll all join in, casting stones upon this poor woman until she's dead. Let's have order to this execution. The Pharisees are stunned. They talk amongst themselves. What are we to do? He's got us again. He's got us again. How does he keep doing it? What are we to do? 
There are some amongst them who just want to throw the rocks anyway. The older ones give them pause. No, no, we're being watched. He's challenged us and we cannot answer. And the older ones first, who know they've been bested again, slink away. They slink away. And the younger ones follow them. Jesus, meantime, is still squiggling in the dirt. He looks up and I think he's genuinely surprised to find they've gone. And he says to the woman, where are they? Is is there no one here to condemn you? And she says, no, there's no one. And Jesus says, neither do I. Go and leave your life of sin. Doesn't Jesus reveal to us the grace of God in an extraordinary way? Just astonishing. He sees a woman taken, humiliated, shamed, thrown before him, used as a political and religious pawn, and doesn't buy into it, he dignifies her. Does no one condemn you? Neither do I. Go and leave your life of sin. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Go and leave your life of sin. What, whatever does he mean? Does Jesus mean go out and get yourself a respectable job? <laughs> That's not going to happen. Everyone knows that she's a prostitute. Is Jesus perhaps saying, well, go and fill out some forms at uh, first century Centrelink and you can receive government welfare? Well, of course, that doesn't exist. What does Jesus mean when he says, go and leave your life of sin? Where is she to go? Friends, what Jesus is saying is join me. Come with me. Become part of us. You're welcome in this family. You can leave that stuff behind. The day-to-day of having to feed the children that you have by selling your body to disgraceful men who abuse you for their good pleasure, leave that behind. You don't need that anymore. You don't need that anymore because we'll look after you. We have a community here who will look after you. Come, be part of us. You don't need that anymore. It's destroying you. It's no good. In first century Palestine, the women who were involved in prostitution didn't choose that. They were thrown into that position, either through the death of a husband and they're suddenly shoved into poverty, or because they have no one to look after them. And they are outcast religiously, they are outcast socially. Within themselves, they feel deeply ashamed, but they've got to feed their children. How are they to do that? Well, the only way they can, they sell their bodies to men who pay. Jesus says, there's a better way. Come and be part of my family and together we'll find a better way. You can leave that stuff that's so destructive behind. Leave your life of sin. I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you. Here's the truth of it, friends. For those of you who've been involved in Christian church for you know, many decades and those of you who are perhaps brand new to this story in this space, our God is a redeeming God. And for the things in your life that you feel deep shame about, the the areas that you've failed, Jesus says, I do not condemn you. But leave that destructive stuff behind. Come with me. 
Let's learn a better way. The very basis of our community in the Christian faith is this idea of grace. How does this all matter with Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Well, the problem, one of the problems with Maslow's hierarchy is that it kind of exists in an abstraction. And I want to suggest to you that that underneath that hierarchy, which makes enormous sense to me, and I want to see people moving through into that space where they work in their passion areas and feel that deep sense of satisfaction... But all of that sits within the framework of forgiveness of God, the God who has redeemed us in Christ Jesus. That's the saddle, the frame in which that hierarchy sits. And that's why the hierarchy actually makes sense. Why we can move through those stages. Because Jesus says, I have set you free. I've set you free. Sometimes in the church we tie ourselves up in knots with shame we hold those things secret because we think oh gosh if people knew that I struggled in areas they wouldn't love me I'd be I'd be rejected just like the poor woman in the story that we've read but the truth of the matter is this that Jesus says I do not condemn you you're not condemned friends you're not condemned you are redeemed not only are you redeemed you're called to be part of God's redemption plan so how do we move this into this idea of Mission in Glenbrook Baptist Church's Mission Month. I want to tell you a story. It's an old story about Outback Australia. It's a story of a farmer who bought a vast property on the cheap because there was no water on the property. And he said, I'm going to run cattle here. And people thought he was an idiot because there was no water there but he knew there was an aquifer underneath the ground that he could tap into and so he drilled down into that aquifer and built wells and he bought cattle and the cattle found the water there would be patches of green in the areas of scrub of course the business thrived and he rang the bank and uh, and said I need some more money I want to expand my farm And he talked to the bank manager that had initially given him the money in the first place. And the bank manager said, you need more money? He said, yes, I need more money. The farm's going really well. Thanks very much. And the bank manager said, this time you're going to build fences? Need more money for fences? And the farmer said, no. Come out and have a look. So the bank manager drove out from the big city, drove out right into the bush, and he found himself on this man's farm. As he drove in, he drove over the cattle grate. He looked left and he looked right and he noticed there were no fences. It didn't make sense. We continued driving and there was a well and around the well was green grass and lo and behold, cows. And there was another one over there and another one over there and he saw quite a few. On the way, he arrived at the, uh, at the home, sat down with his farmer and said, okay, let's talk business farmer said as you can see the farm's going well I want to expand the herd I want to buy in more cattle I want to multiply what I'm doing here I need more money and the bank manager said oh I know why you need more money you've got your animals working well they look really good and now you make sure you want to make sure they don't wander away you're going to build fences is that what you need money for and the farmer said of course not 
Of course not. I want more money so I can dig more wells. What's the point of this story? The point of this story is that the farmer realised that the water was the wellspring of life. And if he exposed the wellspring of life, then the cattle would congregate around it. He didn't need fences to work out who was in and who was out. They're not that stupid. They can work out where the water is and go to that place. There's good feed there, there's good water. They're not going to wander off into the desert and die. They'll stay right near the water. He didn't need fences. He needed more wells. And this is true for us too, friends. We don't need to worry about building fences of working out who's in and who's out of God's kingdom. We need, don't need to you know, adjudicate as to the woman caught in adultery. Is she in or is she out? The Pharisee said, she's out. The Pharisee said, we're in, she's out. And Jesus said, no, 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 you've got it wrong. See, here's the point. She was a long, long way away. Sure, she was a long way from living a holy life. Not arguing the fact. But she was pointed in the right direction. She was looking right to Jesus. The Pharisees, meantime, where were they? They were right there, right there in the centre. But where were they looking? They were looking in totally the opposite direction. You see, it's not so much our distance that matters from God, it's our orientation. Are we looking towards God or are we looking away from God? Friends, our role, our task in mission is to make sure that our communities, our churches, our home groups, where we gather, they're places of life and freedom and liberty. They're wells. Indeed, in John chapter 7, just prior to the story, story we read this morning, Jesus says that he is the water of life. He is the wellspring in our communities. Friends, let's dig more wells. Let's plant more churches. Let's share the gospel more freely. Let's live our lives in the liberty of Jesus. Let's not worry about who's in and who's out and where the boundaries are and where the fences are so we can adjudicate on that. That's the work of the Pharisees. And Jesus rejects it. Jesus asks us simply to love him, to know him, to know that we are redeemed by him and not judged by him. He's come to set us free and called us to be people who proclaim that Jesus sets people free. And you can do that over your fence. You can do that over your street. You can do that over your suburb or your city. And you can do that over the seas with organisations like Global Interaction. Will you join us? You are a redeemed people. Live as a redeemed people. Amen.